Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the 11th installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today, yes, today we are finally reviewing Tenant. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. I know it's been a long time coming. And don't worry, it's not our fault. Clearly, you know that because a little uh, a little thing called COVID-19 happened. Yeah. Kind of ruined the year for at least for movies and for a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. So Tenet was originally supposed to, I believe it was supposed to come out, what, around August? Does that sound right? Uh, so the original release date was like, well, it was this normal time. Like, I think it was like, what, end of June, July or something like that. And yep. then I got yep. pushed to August. And then I got pushed to September. And they delayed it indefinitely. Yep. And then they finally said, okay, fine, we'll release it in September. Mm-hmm. And then it came out and with whatever theaters were, you know, open, came out in September. Yeah. So it did finally come out Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. Alan and I were shocked. We really didn't believe it was going to come out. Yep. And we had it on the schedule. It kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And we honestly, listeners, may have been able to review it sooner, but I got married. Yeah. I, uh, we actually did get to go see it in the IMAX for my bachelor party. That's right. Yeah, there was like maybe 10 of us in the theater total in an IMAX, which is, you know, seats, I don't know how many, like well over 500? S- yeah, I think it was around 600. Okay. So we, yeah, maybe 10% of the theater was occupied. We were way spread out. Like no one was near us. Yep. And of course it was at 10 o'clock. So nobody was like really going then. But nevertheless, we, I am glad to say that we did get the IMAX experience for this movie. Right. And of course now we're reviewing it on home video. It came out pretty quickly Mm -hmm. on home video because I got this in December. So just a couple months after in September, But yeah, so it was interesting. And if you'll recall, our last um, Nolan review was uh, released uh, Monday, July 20th, 2020. So it's been a solid six months since we have visited a Nolan film. If you'll indulge me for a minute, we did start this series all the way back on March 30th, 2020, almost very close to a year. It's been about 10 months we thought we were leading up to Tenant. Yeah. So thankfully we were able to see the movie now. Right. And it should also be noted that uh, those episodes that we recorded uh, were recorded weeks in advance. Yes. So we were already probably about three or four in before COVID actually hit. And things started to be questioned as like, you know, what is going to come out and what isn't. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. The ship was too late to steer clear of at that point, Mm -hmm. because as Alan said, a little peek behind the scenes, we usually review almost a month in advance. So at this point, COVID was a twinkle in everybody's eye. Right. (laughs) We We didn't know what was going to happen. So we were... In at that point, I think um, No Time to Die was actually supposed to come out around yeah, March or April. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah. And that was like the, from what I recall, that was like the first one to be moved. And it was a big controversy, a big mess. Nolan like wasn't going to move Tenant as best as possible. He wasn't going to delay it to 2021. It was going to come out that year and it did. And I'll mention the box office here in just a minute. Um, what that did for the movie because it is interesting to talk about. Um, in your guide to Tenet, I go much more in depth with that and how it compares to his other movies. So if you haven't listened to that, link in the description below. And while you're looking in the description below, um, we have all kinds of links to our social media platforms, our official website. Um, definitely check out our letterbox profiles, follow us on there because clearly we watch a number of movies outside of these reviews. So you are getting some free bonus reviews that way. You're getting our thoughts on uh, what we're watching throughout the week. You're able to comment. You're able to interact with us. That's a great way to just uh, keep up with us every week over on Letterboxd. So make sure to follow us there. And also make sure to check out our Patreon page where you can get some great bonus content that you are able to financially support us. That really does help us out to produce these it's not free for um, the bandwidth, for the servers, for storage, for anything like that. So it's a great way to help us out, great way to interact with us and get some bonus content. So tons of great content in the description below. I have no idea how long this is going to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were talking beforehand. We were just like, uh, this one might be, this one might take a while. It might take a while. So nevertheless, if you are just ready to jump into the plot, you want to know what this movie is actually about, then I did my best with a the plot there. If you want to just hear our thoughts on the movie, or maybe you're just ready for our final reactions, all of those timestamps are also in the description below, so you can jump around wherever you want to in the podcast that way. Well, Alan, I know we, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, we saw the trailers. Were you looking forward to the trailers, or... Did the trailers make you excited to look forward to the movie to get you into theaters? So usually I just straight up just don't watch trailers. Um, very easily they can give away too much. Uh, I was It's not as bad as it used to be, I guess, but uh, I'm usually just one to skip trailers. Obviously, if I go to see a movie, it's kind of hard to do that. Um, so when I did see the, the teaser for Tenet, I was immediately intrigued because the teaser tells you very, very little. You see John David Washington, and he looks at a bullet that's gone through some glass. And if you look closely, you can kind of see some of the pieces like falling back in to where it came from. Um, but it essentially tells you very little about what's going to happen. So it was very intriguing. Um, after watching the other few trailers, uh, the teaser is still probably my favorite just because it is so, it does leave you with a lot of things, it leaves you with a lot of questions, right? The other trailers do still. But I feel like the teaser is most definitely the best one. So, yes, judging by the trailers, I would most definitely be in seats because, for one, I'm already a big fan of Nolan anyways. And I'd love to see what he can do now from a film that looks to be a spy thriller kind of thing. So, for me, the teaser wouldn't get me into theaters. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, interesting, but it's not enough for me. That's fair. So, I will say the original trailer, the only one that I did see... Um, at the time, it's considered trailer two. I love. It looks kind of like following almost. It looks a little Lynchian. There is some horror vibes to it. It's very science fiction, and I am hooked. Um, I did stay away from all other trailers, and I'm so glad I did because trailer three is just the entire movie. Yeah. And trailer four is a music video with the rap song for the movie, and uh, it's a bizarre trailer. It's 
because I don't know very many trailers that are, you watched it. What'd you think of it? It's got good music. I do like the song that they have. It, it, that song is in the soundtrack. Um, that one's okay. Um, it still kind of leaves you with a lot of questions because it explains essentially nothing to you. Um, it's 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 good. It's a good trailer. I mean, at least it doesn't, it leaves you with a lot of questions, right? It leaves it pretty open-ended. Um, but I'm still sticking with that teaser. So now that we kind of have hindsight with the movie, we are able to report on box office numbers and scores like finalized scores for the most part. Now, clearly some of these scores can change throughout time, but usually they don't fluctuate too drastically. So it is interesting looking at um, these scores across the board. So Letterboxd has it as a 3.5, IMDb 7.5, Metascore is still positive at 69. Rotten Tomatoes, 70%. I'll talk mm. about that in a minute. And uh, criti- uh, excuse me, audience score of 76% with a cinema score of B. What do you make of all those scores, Alan? They're, uh, they're above average. Yeah. <laughs> but you they're say that. <laughs> Yeah. But they are much lower than, um, I guess, than what a typical Nolan film seems to be. Um, this, I think we mentioned it in the last podcast leading into this kind of intru- when we were introducing it. Uh, this is definitely no one's most controversial films, at least since the dark Knight rises. Yes. Um, which is interesting. I mean, it, it came out of course at a time where it, basically no other movies are coming out anyways. So everyone's like, Oh yeah. Best movie of 2020 with, with not much competition. Um, but that is interesting to note that most of the scores are relatively in the above average range, but they're not very high. That's interesting. And so it's all across the board too. It's not just like, oh, the critics loved it and the audiences hated it or whatever. It's all across the board. They all are relatively the same. Yeah. And you know, any other filmmaker would be more than happy to have these scores, but Nolan has a certain standard from his films that people have come to expect um, seven of his movies, now he has 11, are in the IMDb Top 250. That's incredibly impressive. Oh, yeah. For that, a director. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's more than any director I can think of, more than Hitchcock or Kubrick. or I mean, it's very impressive. So to see these scores are, yeah, people think uh, it's good. Um, honestly, I, I'm just not sure people know what to think of it, especially when they're coming out of the theater and they're first rating the movie mm-hmm. and they have to turn in their review. I just think people are not sure. So that's, I think, a contributing factor. Um, that 70% critic score is shocking yeah. because that's Nolan's first film since his very first film to not be certified fresh. And especially coming off of Dunkirk three years ago, Dunkirk had a 94 meta score, 93% critics rating, it has a 7.9 on IMDb, which isn't as highest. His highest, I believe, is The Dark Knight at 8.8. Crazy yeah. high. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is interesting. Um, B isn't unheard of with Cinema Score. Um, he has had a B before with his third film, Insomnia, and then also with The Prestige. So, if that gives you any indication, people thought it was around there. Um people wouldn't say that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's definitely not a good thing. And 
especially coming from somebody who you know like christopher nolan who is essentially like hollywood's uh hollywood's favorite i guess you could say it's interesting to see a film like this be very divisive and he was very adamant on this one too he was very adamant that you know i want i want this to come out right and it was supposed to also usher in like the return of theaters whenever that was going to be and when it did finally release uh it didn't really i guess hold up to that nothing really came of it because everything just kept staying closed so yeah that's interesting going into this because the last film we had which was dunkirk Mm -hmm. was also one of the more at least in terms of what no one usually does one of the more um unique of his one of the more unique films of his of his foray so far of his filmography yeah so it's that's interesting it's interesting that these scores are as low as they are um, but that's the scoring. I'm I'm curious to know what it got in the box office, all things considered. Well, it it was number one opening weekend. I'm guessing there wasn't much of a of a. I'm, I'm guessing there wasn't much it was a going up against. So there wasn't much to go up against, and there wasn't many people to go see it. Yeah, that's what I thought. Not many people just wanted to go see this movie. Um, opening weekend, of course, is very disappointing. A uh, twenty point two million dollars um based off of a 205 million dollar budget um his second biggest budget right behind the dark knight rises which was 250 million dollars um so like i said it came in at number one but the other um the movies to come in at the top five was the new mutants at number two the x-men movie which I did rent at Redbox. I'm so glad I did. For free. <laughs> it's it's not good. Um, Unhinged came in at three. I kind of recommend that movie. It's very interesting. Um, Bill and Ted Face the Music at number four, which our review for that movie is coming February 1st. And The Personal History of David Copperfield at number five. So, I mean, all brand new movies. It wasn't like it was competing with necessarily like um, Star Wars, mm-hmm. The Empire Strikes Back. Right. Or Jurassic Park, where those movies, we did see those movies, quote unquote, dominating the box office over 2020, which was a very right. interesting phenomenon. Right. So going off of that, this movie with the $200 million budget, not including advertising costs, this movie, uh, just to break even, it needed to maybe triple its budget. This movie had to be a billion dollar movie right. to really pay off and to work out with and, and th- that's a safe bet with Nolan, though, because he does make billion-dollar movies. So there's no reason to think this wasn't going to do good. But with COVID, we'll never know how this movie truly would have performed. Right. And, of course, when you look at theaters, um, The Dark Knight Rises and movies like Interstellar were opening in close to 4,000 theaters. Dunkirk, 3,700 theaters. This, 2,800 theaters. So it's a significant drop. Right. So domestically, this movie only grossed fifty-seven point nine million dollars. Ooh. Oh, it's awful. Ooh. Yeah. That's yeah. That's like what one? How much is that? Not even a third of its budget. That's really low. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So foreign markets that did a lot better because I heard their theaters were opening up and ours weren't. Yeah, they got it much earlier, and they their theaters were open. At least I think they closed. Or pretty much closed now, but they were open mm-hmm. for a bit longer. Yeah, so in the foreign markets, $305 million for a worldwide total of $362.9 million. It made a profit just when you compare it to the other Nolan movies. It's 
very much a disappointment, especially with the um, gross to budget ratio. Right. And I know that there has been discussion and this isn't exactly discussion to have here, but it it does warrant the question, you know, was Hollywood prepared for something like COVID-19? At least judging by this one example, no. Um, $57 million budget is not really that good. For a film like uh, for a film that is by Christopher Nolan, you know, one of the biggest directors, at least of our time right now, if not the biggest. So, yeah, that's not good. It looks like uh, the foreign markets did much better, but, you know, they also had it much sooner than we did. Um, And their, I guess, restrictions when it came to theaters were as much different than ours. So, yeah, it's that is interesting to note. And you're right, it is impossible to know how well this film would or would not, or would not have done if COVID-19 wasn't a thing when it had released. I'm guessing it probably would have made similar numbers to the movies that came before it, um, but it's impossible to tell because of COVID-19. And of course, the Academy, as of the time of this recording, the Academy Awards haven't happened yet. Right. Um, like most of Nolan's films have been there. So I'm very curious to see if it will be there this year. I have a feeling it definitely will be. Mm-hmm. There's not much to choose from anyway. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, in um your guide to Tenet, I did make some Oscar predictions. And of course, look for Alan and I's full Oscar predictions coming in the next few months. So uh, yeah, we'll see where this movie lands as far as awards go. I'm very interested to see that. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't seen Tenet and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, even if you have seen Tenet and you don't want the movie spoiled (laughs) for you. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into that. (laughs) We'll get into that. So uh, go ahead and click pause now. Go ahead, check out the film. Come back and click play, man. We'll be ready to talk about it. Uh, Corbin, I wish you luck. (laughs) Buckle up, listeners. This is going to be dense. I did proofread it beforehand. So don't worry. But uh, yeah, I tried to uh, let's just say I tried my best (laughs) at an opera house in Kiev, which is in the Ukraine. Our protagonist. Yes, that is his name. Protagonist. Well, it's his character name. Not I'm sure he has a name, but that's just all Nolan calls him is protagonist. He's billed as the protagonist. Yes. Yeah. I don't don't think he ever utters his name anywhere. So. So he is played by John David Washington. Yes, Denzel Washington's son. He is working for the CIA, but he is seemingly at the opera house to retrieve a nuclear device from a compromised asset. The only problem is he seems to be under control by a Ukrainian terrorist group, supposedly. We're never really told. Um, Protagonist and his CIA compatriots go undercover as Ukrainian SWAT in order to inconspicuously execute their mission. While rescuing the asset and the bomb, more terrorists emerge to overtake the opera house. These terrorists are likely controlled by a Russian oligarch named Andrei Sator, played by Kenneth Branagh. In order to keep the asset out of the Ukrainian hands, a CIA agent and the asset swap clothes, and the protagonists go back to the Ukrainians. But right before they're able to leave the opera house, protagonist is stopped by a real SWAT member but is saved by a mysterious figure who fires an inverted bullet through the SWAT member. We'll talk about inverted bullets in a minute. (laughs) We later learn this savior is Neil, played by Robert Pattinson. Of course, the Ukrainian terrorists are upset that the protagonist came up empty-handed, so they torture him. That is until he swallows a cyanide capsule. This does not, in fact, end his life, but rather proves he has passed their test. 
he is ready to be inducted into Tenant, which is a group that transcends national interest. It is a word and a gesture. It will open the right doors and the wrong ones, so he must be careful how he uses it. He is given coordinates to travel to a laboratory where they are researching time inversion, or reverse entropy. There he learns that irradiated materials are sent from the future back through time for the express purpose of ending the world. See, in the future, according to Sator, oceans rise and rivers dry up. Their shell of an existence is seemingly to blame for our actions. Therefore, the future wants to destroy us, and they have chosen Sator to do so. Remember, a nuke drop today has consequences for the future. Hence, a weapon created in the future may have consequences in the past. Our protagonist comes to understand that the life of the bullet is happening backwards, or at least to us. So we drop a regular object, therefore it falls down. Whereas an inverted object has already experienced being dropped in the future, therefore it falls up. While that's all interesting, our protagonist is more interested where these bullets are coming from. He traces these rare materials to Mumbai, India. Oh, and if I didn't already mention it, he's doing this in order to save the world, to supposedly prevent World War III, nuclear annihilation. That's not really true. Uh, we'll get into that later on in the plot. But just so you understand, because you don't understand it while watching <laughs> the movie, this yeah. is what he's doing. So like I said, he goes to Mumbai, India. There he meets Neil, who is his helper for the rest of the film. By bungee jumping up like a slingshot, they break into the skyscraper of India's biggest arm dealer, Sanjay Singh, played by Denzel Smith. Or so they believe. In fact, his wife Priya, played by Dimple Kapadia, is the real arms dealer, as she explains, a masculine front in a man's world has its uses. She says to our hero, To say anything about a client would violate the tenants we live by. Which he responds, If tenants are important to you, you can tell me. She tells our hero that she sold regular rounds to Sator and that he inverted them. Priya seems to know about the future and Sator's activities, but she isn't letting on much. Since Sator is on the outs with Russia, he is living in London. So, Priya sends our protagonist to Sir Michael Crosby, played by Sir Michael Caine, who is British intelligence outside of the oligarch's reach. Crosby explains Sator was born in a secret Soviet city, Stalsk-12 where he found plutonium after the collapse of the war, therefore making his fortune selling it. Crosby informs our hero that two weeks ago, on the 14th, the same day as the opera siege, an underground detonation was detected at Stalsk 12. This is very important for later. Wondering how to get in with Sater, Crosby explains Sater married Catherine Barton, niece of Sir Frederick Barton, to get in with British intelligence. She, okay, are you, is your head spinning yet? <laughs> <laughs> Mine is a little bit, but uh, I mean, at least I'm, it's not as bad it was, as it was when we were in the theater. Yeah. Um, after seeing it a second time and also listening along them, it's not as bad, <laughs> but it's still a lot to process. It's a lot to process and we're not even halfway through. Yeah. So Catherine works at an art gallery or appraiser of some kind called Shipley's. Crosby gives protagonist a fake Goya painting made by a Spaniard named Thomas Arepo. Now, once again, if you listen to Your Guide to Tenant, Arepo is interesting because Arepo spelled backwards as opera. So there's lots of little clues and hints and um, go and listen to that because that will definitely enrich your viewing experience. 
Our hero meets with Kat at Shipley's where he asks to further discuss the painting over a drink. She lets our hero know that his Goya is a fake because she sold one just like it to her husband. This has caused her great strife because Arepo was a lover of hers, supposedly, so Seder had him murdered and now threatens to turn her in for defrauding him. Her entire life would be taken away and she would never see her son again, therefore rendering her a slave to Seder. Not long ago, on the 14th, in fact, the day of the opera terrorist attack, she was on vacation in Vietnam, where she tried to convince her husband she loved him in order to get her son back and her life free. He told her only if she left her son forever would he let her go. Upset, she left the boat only to come back to see another woman diving off the top deck. All she could think about was how she wished to, wish to be that free. Sater's men come to the restaurant to kill protagonist, but he gives Kat his number to call him later. If he takes out the painting, then she must give him an introduction. After defeating Sater's men, she tells him the painting is in the Oslo airport in Norway. In fact, not just the airport, but a highly secure free port where the rich store valuables tax-free. Protagonist and Neil devise a plan to breach the free port and destroy the painting. In a daring move, they crash a 737 plane into the back of the building with the help of Mahir, played by Himesh Patel, while the duo pick the locks to get in, all while holding their breath not to breathe the halide gas releasing during the Freeport's lockdown. Once they reach the center of the Freeport, they realize there is a greater mystery. Cat hinted as much, but little did they realize they would find a turnstile, a machine that inverts any object that goes through it. A soldier in SWAT gear comes through the turnstile and fights both protagonist and Neil, but he escapes with his life. Protagonist travels back to Mumbai when he learns about the turnstile technology and that Seder is seeking plutonium-241, which he tried to steal from the Opera House two weeks ago. He is given a new directive by Priya to figure out how Seder is being aided by the future to attack us. He travels to Pompeii, where Kat finally introduces protagonist to Seder as the former first secretary from the American Embassy in Riyadh, where they met at a party last June. Seder hates him immediately, ordering him to be killed. That is until our hero brings up plutonium from the Opera House. The only problem is Cat is still under Sater's control because he removed the painting from the Freeport before it was destroyed. So now she hates protagonist. The next morning, the trio goes sailing on giant catamaran boats. There, the protagonist tells Sater all he knows, but Cat throws Sater off the boat, hoping to kill him. But our hero saves him. We learn when Sater was a young man, he was the only one brave enough to search for plutonium which caused him to unearth a time capsule from the future with his name and instructions for completing the algorithm. See, the algorithm is made up of nine pieces and is actually the irradiated 241, at least one part of it. It's not a nuclear bomb, but a device that will forever reverse the flow of time once all nine pieces are put together, therefore ending life as we know it forever. Seder does not care about dying since he has inoperable pancreatic cancer, Therefore, he is planning on taking the world with him. Our hero helps Sater steal the 241, which was taken by Ukrainian security forces to be held at a secure nuclear facility in Trieste, Italy. During the major car heist in Tallinn, Estonia, our hero tricks Sater by throwing him an empty case while throwing the algorithm into a car that's driving in reverse that will be driven by our hero... In the future, in the past. <laughs> Any, anyways, we'll keep, let's keep going. Uh, Sater takes Cat hostage, fires an inverted irradiated bullet into her, which causes our hero to give up the location of the algorithm. 
but in order to save it from Seder, he must invert himself for the first time, travel back in time, and steal it, which is exactly when this whole car chase thing was going on that I was talking about. Except Seder is one step ahead, tries to kill him, and is now in possession of all nine pieces of the algorithm. Protagonist is saved by Neil and Cat. They travel back in time to save Cat from dying because reversing the radiation is the only remedy. They wait it out in a storage container headed to the Oslo Freeport where they can travel back forward in time, all while developing... No, excuse me. All, all <laughs> while helping Cat heal. At the Freeport, Cat is healed, but our hero realizes that, they're, that he must fight himself to escape. They make it out all right, and our hero meets up with Priya two days before she gave him the mission to retrieve 241. There, she explains, Tenet wasn't founded in the past, but is actually founded in the future. She once again gives him a mission to travel to Trondheim, Norway, to team up with Ives to go back through another turnstile, to go back in time another ten days into the past. Once the whole team is together, they create an elaborate plan, a temporal pincer move moving forward and backward in time. They are to infiltrate Stalls 12 in order to, pre to prevent the algorithm from detonation. A massive battle ensues. Protagonist and Ives nearly stop the detonation when they are thwarted by Sater's henchmen. But Neil, who is traveling backwards in time during the move, goes through a turnstile in Stalsk 12 where he goes forwards in time to sacrifice his life for our hero and to pick the lock so they can stop the detonation. Meanwhile, all of this is happening. Kat is off the coast of Vietnam with Mahir, where she must ensure the future Sater, who has also been traveling back in time, does not kill himself before they can retrieve the algorithm. The reason for this is Sater has a heart rate monitor that... Which, if his heart rate flatlines, then the algorithm is automatically triggered and the world ends. Thankfully, she is able to show him she has traveled back in time, just like him, to his seemingly one happy moment. She ruins it, of course, mm -hmm. where she gets her victory, kills him, and dives off the yacht. So, as you can see, she's the one that dives off the yacht. The Stalsk 12 battle happens at the same time as the opera. The detonation that Sir Michael Crosby talked about is was happening all at the same time. So multiples of themselves were doing this all at the same time without them knowing it. Just watch Back to the Future 2. Yeah. Everything <laughs> everything will be explained. <laughs> That's all it is. This is just a retelling of Back to the Future 2, isn't it? It's pretty much a remake. <laughs> so our hero and Ives are saved by Neil, which they didn't expect since they planned on dying down there with the algorithm. Ives splits the algorithm between the three of them, commanding they be scattered across the world. Okay, and then they must take the secret of the location to their graves. But Neil gives back his piece, saying he must go back in time, or else their lives wouldn't be saved. This is the end of their friendship for them, but the beginning for our protagonist, who actually recruits Neil years into the future. Meanwhile, back in London, Priya is about to have Cat killed, since there cannot be any loose ends to those who know about inversion. Despite earlier giving protagonist her word, they would be safe. The reason our hero knows Cat's life is once again in danger is because he gave her an inverted phone that gives him the ability to always hear what she says in the past, present, and future. Our hero kills Priya as he goes on to lead Tenant, while Cat and her son go on to live a happy life as credits roll oh goodness <laughs> i wouldn't know how long that took you to read through because it was a long time but that's a very good uh plot summary corbin 
Yeah. You know what, listeners? I don't thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. Yeah. Because let me let you in on a little secret here. I popped this in my 4K player. I spent, I would say, the movie's two and a half hours. I spent at the very least three and a half hours, maybe close to four hours taking notes. So that plot summary, I do have an original plot summary where it's just like a stream of notes. That thing is probably seven or eight pages, maybe nine pages. Um, It's crazy long. Okay. Mm. It's super long. So that's the condensed version. (laughs) Great. Yeah. So (laughs) this movie took me forever to understand. I had to rewind it a couple times. I had to pause it many, many times. Um, I think I broke my player because (laughs) at a certain point it just wouldn't play the movie anymore. Oh, no. And, um, yeah, and when I got it to work, there was no audio. Great. So, uh, yeah, it it, it was a great time. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But so I guess this is kind of my first thing um, going into this. This plot is very convoluted. Right, as is pretty clear and evident given your long plot summary. This is not a uh, an easy plot to understand and to get through and know all the intricacies. So that's kind of my first thing about this is when I watched when I walked out of the theater for the first time, I I was thinking to myself, I was like, I have no idea what I just witnessed. Yep. To be be completely honest with you, yep. I I liked what I saw, but I have no clue what it was all about. And that, at the same time, also interested me. But this plot, as I stated, as Corbin stated, is very long, complex, and very convoluted. Yeah, I have the exact same reaction when... I I just remember sitting down in the theater. First of all, I only saw one trailer, and it didn't really explain much. I had no clue in the world what this movie was about. Mm -hmm. And I know it was purposely kept very, very secretive. Right. So we're sitting down to watch this movie, and I had actually seen the Opera House open before. Um, It was like an IMAX preview when my wife and I went to go see something in the IMAX that I can't remember. (laughs) I am in the same boat as you, Alan. At a certain point, I would probably say maybe a third of this way into the movie, I had no idea what in the world was going on. I just remember sitting there when he's having um, the drink with Cat. I just had no idea what was going on. Yep. First of all, I couldn't understand half of the dialogue, more than half. I couldn't understand it. I needed subtitles. Also, this movie, I'm going to, we'll talk about this later. It's long, but it just moves very quickly. Yeah. Um, it, you blink and you'll miss it. You're on to the next sequence in the film. So I walked out of the theater thinking, I think it was good. Um, I don't know what I saw, but, uh, I knew that was a movie I couldn't make a final judgment on. Yep. I, I was going to have to sit with it and rewatch it and really digest it to make a determination. Yep. No, I'm with you. I do, I didn't even rate it when we walked out of the theater because, like I said, I had no clue what I just saw. And it's kind of hard to make a judgment on something that I don't really I, – I completely just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, of yeah. course, over time, the more I thought about it, the more I was – I kind of like went back and like looked at the plot synopsis and refamiliarized myself with what happened. I began to slowly kind of understand where the film goes. When I walked out of the theater for the first time, I understood a couple of things. One of them was that it was a movie that hearkened on somewhat of free will. Um, it hearkened on uh, themes like essentially somewhat like of the like a nuclear holocaust in a certain way, but not as um, in that same vein. But something that, as they say, much worse. 
Um, so I, I understood a couple of things. That's where I would say looking at looking at it now, or one of the more important things. Um, that's what I was picking up on when I walked out the first time. How that all connected <laughs> was very much a uh, that's a journey in and of itself. Yes. Now that I told you, I spent three and a half four hours just with the movie. Now that's not the whole time I spent with my combo pack because it comes with an hour and 15 minute documentary of of the film. So I watched all of that and then I watched all like five trailers or whatever. Gotcha. So the, one of the things I took away in the documentary is that Nolan loved growing up watching the James Bond movies. Mm -hmm. So this is his Bond movie per se. This, this is a spy thriller, but of course, with Nolan, it has to have a scientific twist. So it's also science fiction because time is big in almost most of his movies. Um, scenes are out of sequence, um, realistic time as far as planets go. It's it's scattered throughout there. And if you watch the very beginning of Memento where the whole thing happens in reverse, you can see where the seeds came from for this movie because no one said the idea happened 20 years ago. Well, that's when Memento came out. Right. So time is a big thing at play here, but that's just one of the things to keep in mind with this movie is that at its heart, this is Nolan's take on a spy thriller. And it, you know, spy movies are like kind of globe trotting things. That's why they're going all over Europe in there. That's why I tried to throw in locations because. I had no idea where they were going um, when I first saw this movie, but when you pay attention, turn those subtitles on, they're going all around the world. So it's very much his spy type of movie. Yeah, and like no one is not necessarily new to taking somewhat of a given uh, genre or formula, like a spy movie, and then like just taking it and saying, well, what can I do with this? What can I do to give it that Nor- that Nolan formula, mm-hmm. right? And then just take it completely off the rails. Right. So like a good example would be maybe Inception. It's somewhat of an action movie, also more of a drama, Uh, but it takes those action movie cliches and goes, well, let's just put it all inside of a dream and let's just ramp it up to 11. Right. So it's very much the same for this movie, even though I really haven't. I've only seen, I think, a handful of James Bond movies at best. Uh, It's very much a spy thriller at its core, mm-hmm. I guess you could say. That's very much what it's harking off of. Now, it's very different from what you would normally constitute as a spy thriller mm-hmm. um, for obvious reasons, especially if you've seen it. But it is somewhat, give or take, Nolan's take on that kind of film. Yeah. And one of the things that I that hit me in the theaters when I first saw this is, especially having the knowledge of all the Nolan movies beforehand, Nolan doesn't... Um, except for, I think, Insomnia and maybe following, maybe one other, he doesn't put the title at the beginning of his movies. He uh, That's just one of the things he doesn't do. Um, doesn't put credits or anything. Mm-hmm. The title is at the beginning of this. And, of course, I think that plays into kind of, is this the beginning? Is this the end? We don't know. It's both, right. I guess you could say. Yeah, this is one of those instances where, you know, the title could be either one. It could be at the beginning, could be at the end. And in reality, it's kind of both, <laughs> I mm-hmm. guess you could say, yes. um, when it, it does come up. But yeah. And I got to say that I'm very happy with the opening. I, in true Nolan fashion, the sound design is great. Mm-hmm. It's pulse pounding. It's exciting. It's something we haven't quite seen before is like this opera that's locked down 
<laughs> is actually their doom because they're infiltrated by these terrorists and wake the Americans. They have to pretend to be Ukrainian SWAT mm -hmm. and they go in to retrieve the asset. And they, of course, every spy movie has to have some secret code and word to it. So this one is pretty good. It's we live in a twilight world and there are no friends at dusk. Right. And that's how they know this guy is the one. And um, it's very exciting. I really like the opening of this movie. Yeah. And this kind of gets into one of my favorite aspects, which is the score. Uh, we mm -hmm. have a different composer this time around. It's yes. Lud I think it's pronounced Ludwig uh, Goransson, I think is how you say his last name. If I pretty sure, pretty sure I butchered that. But <laughs> either way, it's not Hans Zimmer. No, nope. uh, this time around, it's, it hasn't been. Um, we haven't had a film not scored by Hans Zimmer for a number of years. Yeah. So, what do you think about the score, Corbin? Because I have I have some thoughts on it, but I want to know what you think of it because this is very different from anything we've ever heard from no one. Yeah, I'm I am very curious about your thoughts. I liked the score enough to I actually went and listened to the whole thing. Um, and okay, I'm I'm going to be controversial here. This is actually one of my favorite scores from a Nolan movie. So while there are some aspects um, that sound like there's like one scene that almost feels completely plagiarized <laughs> um, from the dark Knight, um, But nevertheless, this does feel like this is what Nolan would want in his score. But uh, Ludwig's score, I really loved it. I, I thought it was great and I thought it meshed really well with the movie. Yeah, no, I, I do absolutely agree. Uh, this, especially with this opening scene, this, the opening track for the soundtrack is like almost 11 minutes long and it's amazing. Um, I listen to it quite often because it is just that good. Every, everything, the rest of the, of the tracks on the soundtrack are, are good too, but this is the opening one at the Opera House is by far the most standout. Yeah. So you're, yeah, I do agree with you. I think that uh, the addition of Ludwig, it was a great idea because he brings something that uh, is very different than what we've seen before. Um, for almost any movie that's even close to this, right? So, yeah, it, it, I'm glad that no one films almost consistently have great music behind them. Because a lot of the times, especially in films that are very much writing on the cliche, you don't really get that good of music behind them. It's just generic just to kind of get it by. This one, it, almost all of Nolan's films have been the complete opposite, where there's also as, as much importance as he plays on writing and telling the story, he also writes and plays how the music also plays into the exact same thing. Right. So, yeah, no, I agree. This is a great score. And I'm glad that we actually have a, a different composer this time around, even though it's not Hans Zimmer, who always does a good job. It's good to have a, a new composer for at least for no one to come in and bring his own spin on things. I will say I'm really excited for Zimmer's score for Dune that we'll oh, yeah. get here next year. I am, too. Well, and we're also no stranger to Gorenson's scores because mm -hmm. we just reviewed Creed 1 and 2 and he scored both of those films. That's true. Yeah. He's not a, he's, he's, a, he's more of a newer composer. Yeah. I think. He's new. But he's like starting to get his name out there. He's in a lot of stuff now. He's already got an Oscar yep. for <laughs> scoring Black Panther. Uh-huh. So I also want to know what you think of Hoyt Van Hoytima's cinematography yeah i think i mentioned in dunkirk it's been a number of weeks <laughs> since we recorded that but i remember mentioning in uh in that review that at the time it was most definitely at least in my opinion no one's best looking film to date mm. which is a hard thing to say because almost all of his films look fantastic yeah. um i think i still prefer tenet or i think i still prefer 
Dunkirk over Tenet, but Tenet does look great. It looks amazing just like with Dunkirk and just like with Interstellar, you know, and the films of the past. I think it's not, I, I personally would prefer Dunkirk, but they're close. There, it's, it looks It looks really, really good. Yeah. And, you know, this is his third time working with him. I gotta say, I am really happy that um, Hoytima is now shooting these movies. It mm -hmm. seems like he's here to stay. Uh, Wally Feister was with him for so long, but uh, Hoytima just looks really good. And he does things that are very unusual. He basically does uh, handheld IMAX cameras. Which is insane. <laughs> yeah, he just throws them on his shoulder and he goes for it. So I think it, it looks very compelling, these movies. And even the colors in this movie, mm. I was able to watch it in 4K with HDR. Man. Um, it looks really good and engrossing. So it's a great experience visually. Yeah. I would say. Now, does the Blu-ray come with uh, both aspect ratios? Because I watched, I rented it off Amazon and it was not, um, when it switches between the IMAX camera and the standard cinema camera, um, it did not switch for me. Did it switch for you? It did. Okay. Well, then I need to get the Blu-ray <laughs> because yeah. I missed, I missed to see, I, f I remember when we were in the theater there, the majority of the film was shot with the IMAX camera. There was only a oh, yeah. couple of scenes that weren't. Um, and it was one of those things where kind of like with Dunkirk, um, it was almost uh, a distraction when it wasn't filmed in IMAX because so much of it was. At least seeing it in the theater, that, uh, in the IMAX. Yeah, it was very nice to be able to still retain that IMAX aspect ratio, or at least very close to it. Mm -hmm. So definitely check it out if you want the full experience, the experience Nolan wanted for you. Right, right. So this movie is nevertheless a spy movie, but there isn't a lot of, I would say, conventional action in it. Mm -hmm. It seems to be more so um, Nolan-driven action, which always involves cars, it seems like. Yeah, Driving uh, crazy. Um, I particularly think of In the Dark Knight with the Joker heist. Oh, yeah. Um, I think this these car chases are pretty exciting. And, you know, I do think also... Some of the action is good, too, and I do like that John David Washington is able to kind of bring this very calm and collected um, persona to his character, but also like when he fights the um, fights the henchman in the kitchen, mm -hmm. I know some people didn't really like it. They didn't think it was very good, but it, it's pretty quick, and I, I just like that we kind of get a little taste of what this guy can do. Yeah, and I would say my my absolute favorite fight scene of the whole film is when he fights himself inverted. Uh -huh. We do get to see it a couple of times, right? Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where I, I sat there and I'm just like, okay, now how did they do that, right? Because it very clearly looks like, you know, somewhere someone... And either one of the one shot, either it goes between the shot that is reversed and one that's not, um, or it's just choreographed that way. It, it looks very convincing when you have one fighter who's fighting in reverse or inverted and one who is not, right? It looks very, very convincing. I don't know how they did it, um, but that was one of my favorite moments in the film is when we got to that time when they're trying to make the heist on, on in Freeport, having them fight in the hallway. That's by far one of my favorites. And that's one of the things, too, is that when it comes to fight scenes, kind of like what you were saying, Corbin, they're very unique. They're very Nolan-esque, right? There is that like gimmick to it, I guess you could say, that makes them wholly unique compared to everything else. I really will recommend watching that documentary because if you want to have a deeper appreciation of 
kind of the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making this film. Mm-hmm. You'll really get that because, yeah, those um, like when they're fighting in reverse, the reason it looks really good and interesting is because oftentimes, um, they're not just um, playing the footage backwards; they actually choreographed it um, for them to flip backwards. Or for them to move backwards. And gotcha. um, these stunt people are just top rate. And Nolan was like crazy impressed. Also, just when you see people running, like running backwards into like the shipping containers at the end, they are actually um, running backwards. Okay. They're not reversing the footage. Um, that's why it looks really interesting. Um, also, they approached IMAX. Of course, they have like the best relationship with IMAX. <laughs> of course. This is really going to blow your mind. They um, asked IMAX to make a camera that records in reverse. Interesting. So instead of, I don't, I, it still blows my mind. It's really funny to listen to Hoytima talk about it because he's like, this was like um, preschool for us. <laughs> we, nobody really knew how to do any of this stuff. Right. They had to completely think in different ways. And no one was like, what if we can, what if while it's recording, it's recording every, all of the movements are recording backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just really crazy stuff. And Hoytima was like, when we were done, we graduated in a master class <laughs> on this. Um, so it seemed like wildly difficult to make, but nevertheless, that's why this, these stunts look so good is because there's almost zero CGI used. Mm-hmm. These are, they really built Stalsk 12. They really built wondered, that city. I wondered. And they really blew it up. And they built um, 50% miniatures as well. And they worked super hard. And of course, one of the biggest moments of the movie, they really did crash a 747 for real. You know, I wasn't su- I'm not surprised to hear that. I, I think I even turned to you when we were watching the theater and I said, <laughs> I bet you that's a real 737. And I bet you they actually crashed it. Like that's not even a joke. <laughs> no miniatures were used. That's what I thought. That's not a surprise given Nolan's track record. You know, the same guy who put an IMAX camera on a Learjet, uh, the same guy who did does all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so th- this is, I guess, no surprise to me, but it also just kind of goes to show that, that no one is one to always push it, right? He always, he's always one to try and push the envelope, trying to, you know, seeing how he can shape and move the conventions of film into a way that would serve his, this, his story that he wants to tell best. In this case, one of those things was recording film backwards. If a camera that's designed to do that, not just by a setting on and off, right? That's... Yeah, that's typical Nolan in some ways. It's it's really silly to kind of think that, oh, well, would they, why would they do that? But when you put it in the context of the film, it, it it kind of makes for a very interesting story just to hear about what they did to make the film. Yeah, and the other thing is a lot of these stunts, John David Washington and Robert Pattinson did themselves. Mm, okay. Um, when they are bungee jumping up the building, they're really doing that. Oh, and um, when they, it was, uh, no one was recounting how Washington was like crazy nervous, mm-hmm. crazy upset about doing this, but he's, he was going to do it. And no one's like, just jump over the side. You'll be okay. We've got a platform to catch you. Yeah. And he's like, okay, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try. And so, yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know if I could do that, but yeah. they're yeah. literally jumping off of a skyscraper, which, um, I know that's something no one wanted to do with the Dark Knight. Yeah. For the Hong Kong jump. 
And as in his words, the stupid bureaucrats wouldn't let them. <laughs> so they had to use a crane. But in India, um, they were allowed to do it. And they were actually, um, we actually get aerial shots of India for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's never been allowed in a film before. Oh, really? Yeah. So that is something cool. You are getting perspectives of locations around the world that just haven't been seen before. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, once you realize how much was put into it, um, you know, um, during the the car chase scene when Robert Pattinson's driving that BMW, yeah. Yeah. he is driving that. There's no hidden person on the side. And so he went through um, stunt training school. He's really weaving in and out of traffic. Man. Um, which is very scary yeah. at those high speeds with those like giant vehicles around him. But you realize they're like, hey, Pattinson- can you drive this through the streets of Estonia? He's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to return to the performances as well. I will say uh, I really like um, uh, Kat's performance. I, I don't remember her name. Oh, I yeah. I, did I, I even write too. it down on the plot? I was so busy. <laughs> <laughs> so busy trying to do everything else. But um, they saw her performance in Widows. Uh, Emma mm-hmm. Thomas actually did because originally her character was going to be older, but they saw her performance in Widows and no one was like, I really hope she'll be in my next movie. Um, so I like her performance here. She does give some really solid emotional performance during their um, time when they're having the drink and she is just so dejected, so resigned to her fate. And um, I really like that as well. And I like when Washington says, I'll give you a second chance. She's like, I don't need redemption. And he says, at betrayal. Mm-hmm. So there are some, that's, see, that's, let's, we can talk about the dialogue as well here afterwards with that. But um, her performance and Kenneth Branagh. Yeah. Well, last time we saw him as Dunkirk, as the sea that's captain right. that stays behind. That's right. And I think he does pretty good here as well. Yeah. He, he yeah, he definitely does. And uh, all these characters, I mean, it's in typical Nolan fashion. There is no wasted space, right? Especially with uh, his most recent films where they are very epic in scale, right? Uh, there's no wasted space either in the characters or in the story or locations, etc., right? And so, yeah, these characters, they feel different this time around. And we kind of, I kind of noted in Dunkirk that, you know, at least they aren't bombarding us with exposition like they have in his previous films to try and explain the plot to you because the plot itself is so complex, right? We do have some of that here, but the plot is at the same time left up to the audience's interpretation to try and put the pieces back together with what they're given. And the way that they write these characters, I feel helps give these characters that are here, helps give them a little bit more of a personality because they haven't really had much of that in previous films. They've always been just walking exposition spoilers with a motive behind what they do in the film. So yeah, this time around, um, definitely with the three standout characters, Kenneth Branagh, um, John David Washington and Elizabeth DeBecky, I think is how you say oh, her name. Yeah, that's her name. Yeah, the 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 three standout characters with, of course, side characters from Robert Pattinson and whatever. Mm-hmm. But the three main characters, I feel, do a very good job with the roles that they were given. A very good job. You know, uh, no one even said that what Brana brought to the role. He wanted him to be like the most ruthless person ever. Mm-hmm. He said that what Brana brought to the role reminded him of what Heath Ledger brought to the Joker interesting which is a big statement yeah that's interesting 
Yeah. And you know, one of his most menacing scenes is uh, he, he is really like a guy you don't want to mess with. He's oh, yeah. very scary when he throws the thing at Kat and then he like is just slowly taking his belt off, wrapping mm-hmm. it around his hands, getting close to her. And then when they go to the Freeport in Talon and he just yells at her, kicks her in the stomach after she pulls the gun on him. Right. That performance actually just really caught my attention. And from there, I was like gripped to the screen with his performance, how violently angry he gets, because you don't really see that very much in movies, at least that well portrayed. Um, And I want to compliment Goranson's score in that scene as well, because um, you can hear a pulse, which ties into his heart rate. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, you're right. Also, the way I likened it, I don't know what he used to for the composition, but it just sounds like these very like angry bagpipes being Mm -hmm. depressed or an angry, like accordion or a horrible combination of both. And it works really well on the scene. Yeah. I I do want to kind of want to get into the character of Kenneth Branagh um, because he's very much a guy who's like obsessed with control, right? We definitely see that with his wife of cat who is basically a slave to him. um, When we, when we first meet her, Right. He's definitely somebody who is like pretty much consumed with control because now he's found when we do get to meet him, he's found the thing that can essentially put the entire world into reverse and destroy the whole world. Right. And he himself is also dying at the same time. And so whenever I guess whenever he feels like it, you know, he can shoot himself and die and the world would then be uh, well, it would be destroyed. Right. So it puts his character into an interesting perspective because, you know, he's the one who he's the one who put it, gave it to himself um, or sorry, there are beings in the future, which is kind of hearkening on um, something like Interstellar, what Interstellar did, right. where somebody in the future, some uh, some uh, in theory, some divine force until it's revealed later, um, gives characters a certain thing to do a certain thing to be great. Right um, now in Interstellar, it's a bit of a different story. But with this one, you know, it, it, he's given an immense power, right? And given his state, when he's given such a thing, especially later in life, he kind of becomes, you know, mad with control, right? Which is very, very interesting because this, like I mentioned, one of the things I packed up on was that free will aspect, right? So we have the man, the the antagonist in the story, I guess you could say. Um, he's very much one who's, you know, assuming all control of everything that he touches, um, but at the same time, there are two main leads, that being Kat and the protagonist. They're also the ones who are learning to break free and have that free will that was not given to them. Yeah, there is a fascinating um, question here of free will, as you mm-hmm. brought up. And ultimately, you see Branoff figures himself as a godlike figure. Yeah, He can just go wherever he wants. He is beholden to... Not international law, not rules. If he wants you to die, you die. He takes life willingly. He seems to give life very sparingly. And that is a fascinating concept how he does kind of see himself as this very almost like antichrist or Mm anti-messiah where he is this chosen one plucked from time for a very special purpose. And instead of like an interstellar, humanity in the future saves humanity in the past right whereas humanity in the future is super mad (laughs) at us (laughs) and ultimately wants to destroy us and they pick him as the vessel for destruction so there is a lot to his character 
you will not catch it on the first time, I would say. You can see the seeds of it, but I will say this movie definitely repeats, or excuse me, rewards on repeat watching. Oh, yes, ab- absolutely. I picked up more on my second watching than I did in the theater by by far. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of ironic too that, you know, well, I guess not necessarily ironic, but it, it just does kind of set up, you know, the battle between um, Kenneth Branagh's character and Cat and the protagonist, because Kenneth Branagh is using the inversion that he finds that's given to him. He's using that inversion to control the world and do it to his bidding, right? Um, whereas the other two characters, especially Cat, they use that in against him to break free, right? So it's it's an interesting dichotomy that you have here, where time is the thing that is either the harbor of control or the inhibitor of free will, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that Nolan decided, and this is nothing new for him to take time and mess with it in his films, um, but it's interesting that he chose that to either give or take free will from uh, from the characters of these that are in the film. Yeah, and one of my favorite lines in the movie is towards the end when Robert Pattinson repeats what's happened, happened. Mm -hmm. It's just an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world it's not an excuse to do nothing right and this is a conversation that i've had with my dad a lot for those of you who don't know my dad is a pastor so we've had a lot of conversations about free will prayer and time and a lot of people kind of use an excuse not to pray because they say well god already knows what's going to happen in the future so what's the point of me praying about it now And that brings up the question is, well, if you don't pray about it, then does anything actually happen? I'm probably not explaining it very well, but nevertheless, as Robert Pattinson says, it's not an excuse to do nothing because you think, you know, oh, well, I know this is, this might already, something bad might already happen. Well, you don't actually know that, or that could be all dependent upon whether or not you act or not. And so that's what's very interesting is we see these characters uh, when he talks to Sir Michael Crosby. Michael Crosby says we found a detonation in Stalsk 12, therefore indicating that this big battle has already happened, mm-hmm. and we know Kat has already dived off of the top of the ship, indicating that she has already defeated Sator. These characters just don't know it yet. And it begs the question, if they just, you know, went home and watched Netflix and did nothing, then the outcome may be very different. But nevertheless, they don't do that. And the outcome nevertheless happens just the way it's all intended to happen. So there is a very complex um, discussion here to be found about free will and our position in it, um, whether we should act or shouldn't act. So, and and once again, that's something you totally miss, I would say, on first viewing. But watching this now, there is so much to these characters and what they're trying to do with this free will. As you said, Alan, it seems like Seder has taken away all -hmm. of their free will. It seems like he's already determined the outcome. He's in the past, present, and future. But they are able to also act within all of these parameters and... um, Ultimately, they do defeat him. So it's a very fascinating discussion. Yeah, it is. And they kind of, kind of, in a way, it kind of says that, you know, you can't exactly take away free will, right? It's always going to be there in some way, because even though Seder, in reality, 
controls, like you said, the present, past, and future. He essentially has time in his hands that he can mess with and change to his doing, right? He's still ultimately defeated, right? He, Even though he wants to take away all that free will, it's not necessarily something that he can take, right? It's not his, uh, it's not his position to control that as evident by what happens to him in the end. So, it, yeah, it's it kind of, I guess you could even say, begs the question, well, if a human... Um, can control free will, what does that mean, right? There is, I would I would even say that, that question that can be asked. Now, I would say clearly this film does not land on saying that, you know, well, if I have free will then, or if, if I can control free will, then that's that, right? It very, I feel like it very much lands on more of the side of, you know, we all have it. It's just a matter of breaking free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it was interesting. I just watched this Netflix show, called blood of Zeus and they were talking about it as well. Mm -hmm. And the example they used is if you see a baby crawling on a table, you know that the baby will fall off the table. That's pretty much going to happen as a likelihood, but nevertheless, you're not interfering with that. So you haven't taken away the free will. Mm -hmm. So nevertheless, you know, God, the creator, even some of these characters, they can, know what is going to happen because it's already happened but nevertheless they are their free will hasn't been taken away right they're still able to operate within the world and make their own choices so it's interesting i i do really like this movie's kind of explanation of time it comes kind of early on um where they talk about emails, texts, anything put into the record speaks to the future. Yeah. So this podcast you're hearing now, but the meaning of now will change based upon when you're listening to it. Some will listen to it presently, which will eventually become the past, while others have yet to listen to it in the future. Uh, But then the movie begs the question, but can the future speak back? Um, I was first introduced to this concept with um, Stephen King's book on writing, where he was talking about how he's basically time traveling right now. He's writing these words 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but he's communicating with me in the future because I'm reading it in the future. So that's kind of a very interesting idea Nolan is playing off of here. And we see that Paul come back around in the end where Kat is able to call him and he's able to know that she is calling him despite her simultaneously calling him. He's able to know in the future, but... Uh, They also talk about grandfather paradox and branching reality. So they don't go too far into those, but... Yeah, uh, (laughs) especially the branching realities. That's where it can get very complex very fast. Yeah, um, it's probably best they don't go too... Bite off too much. Uh, Some will argue this movie bites off more than it can chew. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. (laughs) And bringing up some of this stuff, I think they're just bringing it up for fun. Also, it's just common questions that he's asking um there's one piece of dialogue i really like at the end when neil says can i go back to sleep now and uh protagonist says no i thought of something else (laughs) (laughs) yep (laughs) he's like great okay what are you what are you gonna ask so and ultimately they're saying that the grandfather paradox if the future annihilates the past doesn't that mean that they can't exist and he's like well, yeah, but it doesn't matter to them. They don't care. Right. So you're you're thinking about it too hard, um, which is interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about 
dialogue being on the nose, but <laughs> right, right. But yeah, that does kind of uh, kind of bring back you know that uh, the action thing that you were talking about a little bit ago, right? You know, if they have it there, they have the will to do it, and they can do it. It's just a matter of doing it, right? Mm-hmm. So that, I would say that that definitely brings it back around. The, the grandfather paradox is most definitely a thing that they bring up pretty early on, like you said. Um, but it's that you know that's it's that action that needs to happen in order for uh, anything to happen, right? Yeah, and I like it, especially at the end with Neil's voiceover when he says, "We're the people saving the world from what might have been," mm-hmm. and he said, "Nobody cares about the bomb that didn't go off." But that's the most important one. So I do appreciate it that Nolan is challenging us in, I would say, feasible ways that we can think of. Some of these challenging things are just going to be beyond our understanding. It's beyond his understanding anyway, because ultimately, yeah. ultimately, as of now, it's fiction. Right. As of now, it's just theories. It's just made up for fun. But nevertheless, some of these are interesting to think about, well, what might have been. And uh, maybe we should appreciate more that there are possibly people that we don't even know about that have been saving the world from what might have been. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people don't like some of the maybe maybe I'm phrasing it wrong. I think a lot of the dialogue gets lost without the subtitles. Yeah. Yeah, and part of that is because I know people like with Interstellar, I, I don't know if it also was a thing with Dunkirk. I don't think I heard as much as Dunkirk, but the sound design of Nolan's films, at least with Interstellar and with this one, I've heard that the music is just too loud. I can't understand everybody. <laughs> you know, that's always been an argument that's been happening the last few movies. Um, so that doesn't help. And on top of it already being a real, rather convoluted and complex plot just to begin with. And it does explain a little bit, but not as much as uh, I guess we're used to with Nolan films, um, that just kind of adds to it. So yeah, I can see why it c- can be very hard to follow. I, yeah, I know we couldn't really follow it in the theater. I couldn't hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you turn on subtitles, everything becomes really clear. I don't know if they changed anything for home video, but nevertheless, Nolan has done this on purpose. He has sound mixed it this way to be very loud. He finds it very interesting. I read an article about that on Collider. But nevertheless, you really get a lot more out of this movie with the subtitles. And you find there is actually comedy in this movie, which really Mm -hmm. does surprise me. Um, When Pattinson says, don't let it get cold, referring to the guard's food. He has a gun on him. Yeah. Um, When... He says, I I presume you mean Sir Michael when he's um, meeting him in London. And he says, presume away. Yep. (laughs) Um, And a couple more here. When he says, in a world where you're claiming to be a billionaire, Brooks Brothers won't cut it. No offense. (laughs) He says, I'm assuming I'm on a budget. Save the world, then we'll balance the books. Um, What other lines? I wrote down a lot. I won't read them all. When um, he says, Mr. Sater wants to see you now. And he shuts, shuts the door and he says, now. He says, he wants to see me without pants. <laughs> um, when the airport workers are trying to steal the gold and the police run up and they're like, nine, nine, nine. Oh, yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that got a laugh out of me um, in theaters. And um, there just really is some very witty dialogue that... It's, it's, it's kind of weird because I almost feel like it's almost like a John Hughes type mm-hmm. dialogue. Um, 
you'll you'll understand when I say it here when um, Kat says, if you actually knew a repo, you knew he can't walk. He responds, we spoke on the phone. He can't do that either. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like in Home Alone when Kevin is checking out and he is, I don't remember the exact line, but go check that out when she's like, where's your mom in the car? Where's your dad at work? Where's your brothers and sisters? I'm an only child (laughs) and you're here alone. Ma'am, do you think that I would be here alone? It's just that kind of quick witty dialogue that I just don't feel like we've seen very much in a Nolan movie that nevertheless um, I really liked. And it's not just the witty stuff, um, even though I do love when um, our hero asks, can I drive a car? Like that's his first thing is can I drive a car? And Ives is like, oh, that's cowboy crap. (laughs) <laughs> Try, trying to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's just really funny, but there is some like really like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty powerful dialogue. When Kat tells Sator, even a soul as blank and brittle as yours needs a response. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh yeah, that's mm, it's good stuff. That's good writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I will say for those who have seen this movie and haven't seen it with subtitles, I think you'll find a lot more to appreciate with the dialogue. Oh, yeah. Otherwise, without the subtitles. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this movie benefits with subtitles. I can attest to that. I'm sure you can too, Corbin. Mm, Absolutely. So for all of my praise about the dialogue, I do also have some issues with the writing in this movie. Okay, how so? One of those, well, first of all, even outside of the dialogue, naming our lead character protagonist really i mean i I gotta know your thoughts on that because that doesn't happen um in the polar express the lead boy is just named hero boy Mm -hmm. (laughs) hero boy (laughs) that's different though (laughs) i i don't know alan i really know want to know what you think by making a spy movie and not giving our spy a name yeah, I know that sometimes authors, if they can't think of a good name for their main character, they just straight up won't give him a name or her name. Um, and I have, there are a couple of films that I have seen where the main character or many or any characters for that matter just don't, straight up don't have names, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah, it is interesting that, I mean, he's, give, he's given the name of his protagonist, but it's not exactly, you know, his legal name. <laughs> um, so it's, I think it's, meant to be left general uh i think we're supposed to be as the audience we're supposed to be um taking to heart what the main character that is a protagonist does in this film um i think it's pretty obvious so with that being the case yeah i do agree with you it is interesting that um he's not given a name at all like every other character i think has one except for him Mm -hmm. um i mean all at least all the main characters do Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I I guess I can see Nolan not deciding not to go down that road, not to give him a name so the audience can latch on to it and so that they can like kind of observe that as if they were the protagonist, right? Um, it's just to leave that part general, it's to just you know, make his character a bit more generalized. But you're right, it is an interesting choice to make. You know, I got to say, I'll talk about this later in the conclusion, but... I was kind of very much thinking of the protagonist kind of like Cobb in Inception, mm-hmm. how they are these kind of very slick. Cobb was a very almost a spy like person as well, but at least he had a name and at least people used it and addressed him as such. 
um, we don't get a lot of addressing going on in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, we first, I believe we first hear it when um, Priya says to get anywhere in your Seder would take a fresh faced protagonist. Mm-hmm. And then um, he refers to two antagonists, which just seems odd. I don't, I don't know if I'm missing something, if I'm out of the loop here, but people just don't really use those kind of words. And he says, I'm the protagonist of this operation. Um, he says, once again, I'm the protagonist. I've been working for myself this whole time. Uh, I really don't like it. It's very strange and it feels like it's trying to be a little too cheeky or clever. It's just an odd choice. One that I don't think really works for me. Yeah. I mean, I'm okay with it. Um, I'm okay. That it doesn't exactly have a name. Um, but I could definitely see why it would be an issue. Well, let's also talk about this because I think Nolan has done a fairly good job. I know people have taken issue with his writing, saying that his characters are kind of cold. You can't really sympathize with their plight. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, he's always given these characters something personal to latch on to throughout the story. In Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey was trying to get back to Murph and save his kids. Cobb with his wife um bruce wayne with his um father with his rachel with his family even wayne manor just struggling with a crisis of identity um even with the prestige in the beginning hugh jackman's spoiler alert (laughs) hugh jackman's wife dies and now that sets off this harsh rivalry Mm -hmm. with this protagonist There's really nothing personal driving him towards this, except maybe he likes Cat. Right. But there's really, uh, we're really missing this personal element that has been in other Nolan movies. We just don't know what's going on. And that's because, honestly, we're seeing the back end of the story. Supposedly in the future, he founds Tenet and he recruits Neil. So there's much more of that personality locked in there. The uh, The personal side is actually more so from Neil who knows him it's been a secret this whole time that he knows him and that he ultimately sacrifices his life for him right and that is just kind of underplayed and really exposed there at the end there's seeds throughout it but uh it's just weird where those focus lies for the characters no you're right it is a little bit of an interesting choice to play it out like this right where it feels like almost all of the really really important things um happen not in the film itself right now I guess given how it already tells its story, it makes a little bit of sense. Um, this is like the inception, I guess, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> yeah. of what will become. Um, so, yeah, it, it kind of feels like the main character has like little to learn because there isn't that emotional side to the protagonist, at least none that we see. Right. What we do see, it feels kind of, you know, I guess there, but it's really not explored at all. His relationship with Neil, his relationship with Kat are probably the two bigger ones um, where it feels like, you know, they want to go down somewhat of an emotional route with these two characters, but they don't really go too far with it. Um, So, yeah, I am with you. I feel like the character of the protagonist is one that I I guess isn't as fleshed out as I would like him to be, because um, it feels like he goes in this really big and a movie that's a two and a half hours long right <laughs> he goes on this long big adventure um but at the end of the day i'm struggling to figure out what exactly he's learning that will affect him emotionally right 
well, he doesn't learn anything emotionally. <laughs> yeah. He does spell it out, his realization. I realized I was never working for you. We've both been working for me. I'm the protagonist. Mm-hmm. And so that's the whole trick. And I understand. I mean, I appreciate that. It's ambitious for Nolan to basically, instead of tell the beginning of the story, he tells the end of the story. Right. We don't realize that until the very end of the movie. But he's already kind of done this before with Memento. And that worked far better for me. Mm-hmm. Not knowing who this guy is, little bits and pieces of handpicked revelations until in the end, it is really shocking and mind-blowing what this guy has gone through, who Sammy Jenkins might be, who this guy is. Right. It's really well done there. And it just, he doesn't doesn't do it here. I don't know if he's even trying to pull it off here, but all I could think about was Memento and how in the end... It did feel like it was kind of trying to crib off that a little bit where he's like, it's the end of a friendship for you. It's the, well, in for me, beginning for you. All mm-hmm. that's all fascinating. We don't have any emotional background to really tie in with that. So it's hard for me to feel much of anything. Right. Yeah. And at least with Memento, right, it, we, it's on an emotional journey just to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you yeah. know, it's, it's hearkening off of the death of the main character's wife, right? Mm-hmm. So already we're, when we're dropped into a memento, we're already dropped into a very emotional state for our main character. With the protagonist, not really. <laughs> we don't really know anything about his past, right? And, and maybe that's on, I would assume that it's on purpose, right? That no one is purposefully keeping the main character's story and where he came from and his history and what his goals are kind of under wraps partially to either fill it have the audience fill in what uh what they come in with um like films usually do but in this case it's more of a generic character and that protagonist is the one who helps character helps especially cat um find her free will um or stand up to the person who's been over overly controlling toward her um so he puts the protagonist as a character in more of a helper role but still, that still does not, at least in my mind, doesn't really excuse the fact that, you know, there really is not much to the character of the protagonist outside of, um, well, he has to go on this journey for one reason or another. Yeah, there's really not. And of course, it's unique for our hero to be the one without all the answers. And it seems like his sidekick is actually the one that seems to know everything. Mm-hmm. And you'll you understand that in the end. Of course, I'm sure you caught the Casablanca reference. This is the end of a beautiful friendship where yep. the Casablanca is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Yep. So that was interesting. But okay, I really gotta I really gotta say this. One of the things that was frustrating me most in theaters was how quickly this movie was just moving from A to B to C. It was yeah. whiplash inducing. Yeah. I had no idea why in the world they were at certain places, what they're trying to find out. I don't think I've ever had a single more disorienting experience <laughs> as far as cinema goes. Uh, I wish I just couldn't believe it. Of course, watching this movie now, I get it. But I'm so used to movies nowadays that are like globetrotting, like Captain America Civil War, where they'll go to places and they'll flash the letters like in giant letters across the screen. London. Yep. And then they'll say on the nose like, we're here to get this. Right. Whereas with Nolan, it's like, um, we need to, instead of saying we need to go to India to find X, he just goes there and then mm-hmm. says, I'm here because of X, Y, and Z. So I get it. He's trying to play with that time as well. That disorientation of the effect comes before the cause, but 
Oh, it's really confusing. No, yeah, you're right. It is. And it's almost to the point. It's not quite abstract, I would say. It's, it's definitely not that. But it is um, fragmented. This movie, to me, at least on a first viewing, and it's much better on a second viewing, although I still kind of felt it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a very um, convoluted movie. It's a very fragmented movie, it feels like. Because you're right, it, it is definitely one that kind of does things backwards. I would. I, I, it's kind of hard for me to say that it's experimental um, because it's not really necessarily, um, but it is, at least in my mind, fragmented because of how it tells the story, partially because of, oh, the effect comes before the cause, like you said, right? Um, it does, and that's kind of one of my bigger th issues with it is that it doesn't explain things either the way it should or it you know, it's just so convoluted that so many things are lost from moving from one scene to the next. It makes this movie feel very fragmented, which is a bit of an issue. Let me ask you, was there ever a point on your first watching that you just checked out? You knew you were kind of at that point of no return. You were never going to truly be able to catch up and find out, understand what was going on. You basically just had to write it out. Yeah. Oh, what scene was it? There was most definitely a scene where I was like, oh, all right, I guess I'll just sit and have fun watching it because I've gotten, I'm just, I'm, the train is gone and I'm, I'm just arriving at the station. Um, there was a scene, but yes, there was a moment when that did happen. Uh, mm -hmm. No, I know what it was. It was the scene when they tried to, it, it's the airport, the Freeport scene. That's where I was like, okay, this is really cool and all. I got no idea why they're trying to steal this, this painting. That was when I was like, okay, oh. well, I'll just sit and watch. It is pretty cool. <laughs> it is. It looks good. It sounds great. So I'll sit and watch, and hopefully, some at some point, I'll, I'll pick it up again. Yeah. But it ended up not happening. Yeah. So yeah, you're exactly right. You've got the opera house. That's pretty okay. There's really nothing much to it. He kind of gets inducted into tenant, and then you're learning about entropy, and you're like, what? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll go with it. And then he meets, um, and then all of a sudden he's in India, and you're like, what? Oh. Okay, uh -huh. and that's not a very long sequence. And then all of a sudden he's in, I don't know where he was, but he's in London talking with Michael Crosby. And then Crosby like gives him a painting. Once they bring the painting into play, I was very, very lost because then he's talking to her about paintings. And I'm just thinking, what in the world? And I remember honestly being a little aggravated that it was this confusing. And I'm like, no one is better than this. Did he fall asleep? while editing and <laughs> hit control X a couple times, control V in the wrong places. Um, I just remember being boggled about this painting. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, you're right. They're trying to like steal a painting or destroy it, mm -hmm. but they never like call attention to the painting during that whole time. Right. Because they get so caught up in um, just breaking into the turnstile i'm guessing they think maybe that's where the painting is once again this movie doesn't like really call out much it's just left to you um because there is that transition where all of a sudden they just have the plans to the freeport and they're just like okay we've got it figured out it's like you you do yeah oh, oh, okay i guess i'll go with it because most type of heist movies they like explain it and visualize it not with this one right right no <laughs> you you're right buckle up you're in for a ride so ultimately i'm trying to remember where i truly just couldn't figure it out i just remember when they're fighting in stalsk 12 Mm -hmm. no clue in the world yep, no i'm with you i was <laughs> sitting was like i was sitting there and i was like you know this is fun <laughs> I, I kind of wish I knew what was happening. 
and why we're here. Uh-huh. They like they went over the plan and everything before, and I get all of that. I just don't understand. Like I'm five steps behind you. <laughs> I, I have no idea what led to this moment. And yeah. that was I'm with you. That was exactly where I was at in the theater for Stalks Twelve. Well, and the other, and even right before that, when they're in the cargo containers, mm-hmm. I'm like where are they going? <laughs> what are they doing? Yeah, I, and at that point, I'm like I. I won't catch up. I can't figure it out. So I'm shocked because like I said, I've never been in a movie that confused before. Yep. Um, And it really does shock me that Nolan thought like this was going to be like just huge, just massive. People would love it. People would flock to theaters to see it and come to realize nobody understands the dang movie. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I I guess I can kind of give him a little bit of a pass because you, we do have um inception is a great example and this feels has elements that are very very similar to inception right inception is a very complex when it comes to at least the structure of the plot and all the intricacies that go into what we do see right very complex very convoluted when you really want to get into the minute details which is when i first watched it and watched it over and over again i was it was so complex with, you know, what each character's role is when it comes to them and the dream and why they're there, you know, all that stuff, right? It's kind of the same thing here, right? A lot of very complex details, like extreme details that go into creating the structure of the plot that we see, right? But it's told in a very different way, at least with, uh, you know, Inception, there was a clear goal for the main character of Cobb. Also, at the same time, instructing the other character i forget his name um but instructing the other characters to get to the end goal which is to change robert uh, to change the mind of a big businessman right right so that was very clear even though all the minute details i didn't really understand at least i was able to follow it to a certain point right i didn't need to understand absolutely everything that happened in the film to understand why or what to understand what would ha- was happening in the end this is a very different story with tenet because with i think it's because we're missing that emotional goal with the protagonist right if it's there it's very subtle <laughs> with what it actually is um and it feels almost as if it's not there it's the problem is because there is no emotional goal i feel it's kind of hard to really sink my teeth into it and really follow it i can follow cat's story because i have emotionally invested with her but not so much with the protagonist who's by far i mean who is the main character so they have an issue. <laughs> I mean, it's also interesting because in most of Nolan's films, we understand the goal by the end of the first act. Yeah. Uh, we understand in Interstellar why he has to go into space. And in Inception, in the very beginning, he is tasked by Sato to do the Inception, mm-hmm. right? So with this movie, by the end of the third act, the goal seems to be changing or at the very least evolving um because we just don't understand and that's part of the mystery of tenant is it's always on a need to know basis right so we are understanding further and further um what is going on along with the protagonist um like i said it's a long movie we don't meet the we don't meet the bad guy till an hour in really is it that long i clocked it kenneth Branagh doesn't show up until 53 minutes into the movie man i guess i guess yeah because it is a very fast-paced movie, so it doesn't feel like it took an hour to get to see Kenneth Branagh for the first time. Well, and the other thing I will say is this almost would have worked better as like a limited series. Maybe. Because there are very specifically delineated goals throughout this film. There is opera, and then after that, it's infiltrating the Mumbai Tower. And then after that... It's the whole painting situation. After that, it's 
the Oslo airport. After that, this is really hard to keep up. <laughs> After that, it is um, convincing um, Sater to sounds like Saito. Huh? Yeah, convincing him to help him steal the plutonium. Then they learn about two forty one. They steal two forty one, and then it becomes a whole scenario of running all the way back through time through the movie. Yep. So when you take the movie in bite sized chunks like that, it is much, far more digestible. Mm-hmm. And it it's like, oh, clearly, like, we're going to set out and finish this. And this brings me to another um, big issue that I have is I feel like this movie is very clunky. And as far as it deals with its transitions and then times of exposition, where it will go through these big sequences of big action sequence. And then we take a long pause where it's like, OK, what did we learn in class today? <laughs> and, and that's where it goes through just exposition dumping, which we've talked about that with Nolan before. Yeah. How he loves to dump exposition. And I know people who generally don't like to be spoon fed wanted to be spoon fed far more in this movie. And but nevertheless, it does feel very kind of almost clunky and stitched together for me. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say the the same thing, although I did say earlier that if it was fragmented. Um, that could very easily just be that I don't fully understand this film yet. It's a very complex, very lots of moving pieces, right? As we've been, as we've clearly shown and hopefully displayed. But I guess I didn't see it as necessarily, uh, I didn't necessarily see it the same way, but I understand where you're coming from. This is a film, I feel like to me, this is more of a challenge um, to understand the inner workings of it. It's the same way that I felt when I watched uh, Inception for the first time. It was more of a challenge to understand how the inner workings of that film, how the how it all works, right? This is somewhat of the same vein, although I feel like I'm not as interested in it as I was with Inception um, because of how complex both of these films are, which isn't typical for no one to have very complex plots. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, Inception... We could almost say that's kind of, you know, like pre-calc. And then this feels more like calculus. Yeah. Where there's a big difference. This is far more complex because it's not dealing with dreams. It's dealing with times, dimensions. Oh, my gosh. All kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what entropy was. Yeah, I had to have my dictionary with me throughout this movie. But one other thing that I will say is I don't like some of the line reading in this movie. While sometimes it is good, and I know John David Washington is, this is like his second movie. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's not, his line reading is not very good or his delivery. Um, when Pre is like, hey, you should uh, should help him steal the the nuke. And he's like, I, I can't help him steal plutonium. Helping him steal plutonium is unacceptable, Priya. I'm just going to have to take him out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. Yeah. It just didn't come across very good to me sometimes. Mm-hmm. I guess right before we wrap things up here, if you've been able to follow us this far, (laughs) I would say on your next watching, the cheat sheet is to, as I've kind of said, there are sequences this movie's kind of broken down into, and you have to realize that a number of them are overlapping each other. So the beginning and end of the movie are happening simultaneously. That blew my mind once I learned that. I didn't, I only learned that until I listened to Now Playing's review and Stuart, who got a copy of the script and read it, he revealed that. And of course, while watching this movie, you ultimately figure it out as well. Mm-hmm. It's called out in a weird spot when Michael Crosby, of all people, is just like, hey, there's a detonation in Stulse 12. I'm like, 
this is really important. Why are we learning this right here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guarantee Michael Caine had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> he just does a really good job at like delivering lines and making it sound like really good. Yeah. But yeah, nevertheless, you have to understand the opera, Stolz 12 and Cat killing Sator on the Vietnam, off the coast of Vietnam is all happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I think once you understand that, that um, this movie is not linear in its storytelling at all, um, and that a lot of times, like in Back to the Future, these characters will just kind of come back in on themselves, and there will be three or four of them running around in the world at the same time. It is cool if you do pause it and do some frame-by-frames. Um, when I saw them escaping um, the uh, Oslo airport, um, after they are there the second time, you can see them running back in. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is actually really cool that. to think. I did see that. Yeah. So... There is kind of a, there is a bit of a cheat sheet you can write down for yourself. I would say for a starting basis, understand that it's those three things happening at the same time. So the beginning and end kind of overlap. Um, The other thing to realize is I know some people were confused of like, why are cars driving backwards? You have to realize that they're not really going backwards. They're going forwards and everything else is going backwards. It's just Mm -hmm. all based upon your perspective. So when he is driving that car, um, trying to get the algorithm away from the bad guy, he's not just driving a car backwards. They imagine they're headed towards him. He's headed towards them. So they're going in opposite directions, but ultimately they are headed in the same direction. Uh, There's a lot that is kind of mind blowing. And honestly, I don't think I um, still quite understand that uh, pincer move at the end with the time with the soldiers going forwards and backwards. That one is really hard to keep track of because it's more, more so about the action. Yeah. And that's something we may not have fully touched on is Nolan wanted this to be kind of just more of a mind blowing movie like Inception and not a movie you really had to really had to sit down hard and think about because early on um, he even writes it in the script. Don't try and figure it out. Just feel it. And uh, oh, Alan doesn't make it. It's an interesting interesting quote. (laughs) Yeah. But nevertheless. Nolan wanted this to just be also a very fun action movie, just like a James Bond movie would be. And that's why there is a really awesome action sequence there at the end. And it is breathtaking Mm -hmm. to behold 600 extras. We really haven't seen this kind of stuff uh, since like Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago, where it's these huge extras, which is something they used to do, which is something I appreciate with Nolan is um this he's not just doing it on a cgi soundstage they're doing it on location with the extras that's why it looks incredible so if anything if you can't really follow this movie and on first watching don't even try just enjoy the ride enjoy this really crazy fun experience that's all i can say about that yeah yeah well alan i am crazy interested to know i'm very very curious what is your rating and recommendation for Tenant? Like I mentioned, and like we've also talked about, Tenant is a very uh, controversial film, right? It's very clearly that, uh, you know, audiences have reacted interestingly negative toward it, all things considered, right? Because this is Christopher Nolan. Um, for me, I got to say that 
I, it's very telling that when I walk out of a, the movie for the first time, seeing it in IMAX, not knowing a, a clue as to what I had just witnessed um, there in the theater. That's very telling as to, you know, what I'm going to think of this later on. Like I mentioned, uh, when it came to Inception, when I did watch Inception and I watched it again and watched it again and kept watching it, the more I understood it, the more I wanted to know about the intricacies of how that film worked, right? All, all the roles of those main characters. Somewhat of the same story here. I don't fully understand everything that there is about it. And it is, I, at least so far from what I'm seeing, way more complex than uh, Inception is. But it's very telling when, um, you know, you just don't understand hardly anything that you see, right? So I do have to ask the question, right? Is it really good if it's so complex that it takes out all of the emotional battle trying to understand um, everything that's in the film? It's kind of a hard question for me to answer now, but it is a question I do have to ask, right? How much, how much of a, is it a good film to me if I don't understand hardly anything about it coming out of it for the first time, right? I was able to pick up on some of the things, but not everything. So it's kind of a hard, it's a hard film to rate as well. But now understanding more of it than I did, way more of it than I did the first time, I have to say that it's a film that I can definitely recommend especially those who like to like sit there and understand how, especially with Nolan's films, how they work, how the world operates in such great detail inside of its, inside of its film. So I'm going to say it's a recommend for me. I'm going to sit it at a seven out of 10, but there's also a rating that might change depending <laughs> on how much, how many times I watch it from here on. So seven out of 10, but a solid recommend for me. Christopher Nolan's tenant is easily his most convoluted film. But I gotta say, I appreciate he swings for the fences. He does create an epic international spy thriller, albeit one that foregoes clear-cut transitions and character motivations, which makes for a messy experience. Watching this movie with subtitles is mandatory, and viewing it at least twice with rewinding is completely necessary also to begin and to appreciate what Nolan is doing. On first watching, you'll have a reaction, but I implore you to reserve judgment until after the second viewing on home media. I think most viewers will know whether they wish to return for a third time or simply be done, especially after that second viewing. Dare say, on my third viewing, I'll more fully be able to enjoy the film, and likely on my fourth watching, I'll truly get it with a full appreciation, because there is a lot of little secrets to be found in the story. I don't blame audiences for not liking this movie. Nolan does a lot of things wrong here, namely by taking shortcuts to move the pacing along. It's not even his longest film, so he seriously needed to slow down more to provide us with a clear image of who these characters are and what they're fighting for. I understand it's all there in the dialogue, but while trying to show and not tell, Nolan can't seem to keep it straight between tons of exposition dumps and clunky transitions to major set pieces. I do like this movie. I'm one of the few, and it's not that I don't think this film is too ambitious. I just know no one is better than this. I keep thinking of Inception, how that mystery slowly unfolds, but we're quickly caught up in Cobb's plight, and we're excited to go on the journey with him, and by the end, completely emotionally invested. By simply calling our hero protagonist, that already alienates us from him, and his personal stakes are never stated, which is a shame. The closest character we can care about is Kat because of the plight with her husband. There are some great things and incredibly imaginative ideas which I truly appreciate in a stale Hollywood world, 
but this film needed to cook longer in the oven because it is underdeveloped in so many ways, which is disappointing. Tenet receives seven stars out of 10 with a recommend. We agree. Now, of course, that doesn't mean <laughs> I can recommend this movie to you. You can watch it and you yeah. can hate it. <laughs> but the one thing that I will say, and I have thought about this, especially because a lot of the way Nolan constructs this movie, and I'm sure it, it comes through constructed in the script, is in English, there's a difference between a passive voice and active voice. Now, your teachers in, in writing in anything want you to use active voice. Now, passive voice is okay for some things, like such as for writing novels. Um, a lot of times you can identify that when characters use the words was a lot. It's they're referring to something that's happened instead of it actively happening. Now, um, that's okay. That's perfectly okay. I will say this leads me to my thought that I honestly really wish Nolan would have wrote this as a novel instead of a movie. That would have been something different, but I think this story would have best been told as a novel. Maybe he could have adapted it as a movie, but a novel gives you so much more time to develop these characters and develop these ideas. And uh, yeah, that's all I can say is I think Nolan could have written a great novel and it would have been honestly fantastic to be released in 2020 because nobody was really going to the movie theaters he would have saved Warner Brothers all his money. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that would have been very fascinating for all of us to kind of collectively be able to experience that individually because we're reading that book at home, but that would have been a different outlet. Just like we were all streaming in 2020 um, in a streaming world, he could have released a book. And especially for a guy that really doesn't want kind of the old ways or, you know, old experiences to go away. I don't know. I think a book could have been interesting. So I hope he considers that for the future. That would have been interesting. Um, does no one, do they publish novelizations of his films? I know with some they do. Um, or it, I know with some films, they definitely publish the novelizations, but I, is, are there such things for no one films? As far as I know, no, I'm curious about that, but I'm pretty sure it's not because Nolan never wants his work explained beyond his own explanation the most you could get to a fuller concept is the script if you're able to get your hands on it because i know stewart said he was surprised they cut things in the script that were pretty good and interesting um so as far as i know i don't think so and that's another thing nolan doesn't do commentaries last commentary he did was for memento <laughs> oh really yeah and even that um because of uh, what obfuscation in the disc or random access or whatever, mm -hmm. there would be, he recorded multiple commentaries for that, I learned. Huh. And depending on, it would be random, um, the commentary that would play with the movie. Interesting. And he would give different answers every time um, to the questions in the film, which is really cool. But nevertheless, no, I mean, this hour and 15 minutes bonus feature that I got, that's as good as I'm, we're probably going to get with ever going further. This I've heard from different people that this uh, they think this movie is ripe for a sequel. I agree. I think there's definitely more to develop. But at the same time, I definitely think there's nothing else to do with this movie because we basically saw the end. Mm -hmm. And I don't see how the beginning could be interesting at all. But hey, I'm not Nolan. Um, I guess that's a question, Alan. Do you think 
there we would see a sequel to Tenet? Uh, well, how often does no one do sequels outside the Dark Knight trilogy? Never. Yeah, that's my <laughs> guess. <laughs> this is probably one of his um, one-off films like Inception, like Memento. It probably won't get a sequel, is my guess. It, I, my, I wonder if that's what he prefers, right? There, pretty much all of his films are pretty much, with the exception of Dark Knight trilogy, they're all very self-contained stories. Mm-hmm. It's possible we could get one, depending on how what the demand is for it, uh, given how much it made in the box office and how, how controversial it was. Who knows if it'll actually become a thing, but I'd be curious to see if they um, go down that route, although I don't think it would happen. I think the best bet is, yeah, he either turns it into a book, he writes a prequel novel, sequel novel, or he does make his first entry into television and make this some kind of miniseries which has a far less risk. Um, I think there's too much of a strong reaction against this movie for him to try and go back into something else. He's definitely probably working on a brand new independent property. So I at least create, uh, at least appreciate he creates independent properties. Yeah, we don't get that very often. don't get that very often. Um, So nevertheless, Alan, I do have to ask, is this a pickup or pass? Yeah, it's going to be a pickup. Um, I I don't know how many Nolan films I actually own, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely picking this one up. Yeah, I bought it day one, the 4K combo pack, as I said. So I'm really happy I have it in my collection. I know some people that have watched it just never want to watch it again. That's fair. I don't really blame them. It, it, there's a very high bar, a very yeah. high bar of entry to not even like, just simply enjoying the movie. Honestly, yeah, I'll say this. This guy, I guess this could have been added in my in the uh, final thoughts. At least Christopher Nolan treats his audience like they're not five. <laughs> like he treats them like they're actual adults and are thinking adults yeah. and that they're prepared to watch something like this. Yes. I'm, at least there's that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely agree with that. Um, this is very creative and imaginative. Yeah. I'm I'm struggling to think of anybody any filmmaker that is this creative, at least on a big scale, mm-hmm. not on an independent scale. But nevertheless, I really appreciate that he is doing some very creative work here. Well, Alan, okay, we both recommended this. What else do you recommend that our listeners watch after this? Um, Oblivion. That's a mm. film I haven't seen in a very long time, but it is somewhat uh, in the same vein mm-hmm. um, as Tenet. It's very twisty. It has a lot of lots of uh, gotchas in it. It's been a while since I've seen it, like I mentioned, but that's what I recommend, Oblivion. That is an interesting recommend. Yeah, I really enjoy Oblivion. And the director of that, we will be reviewing his upcoming film this year, Top Gun Maverick. That's right. So, and it's interesting you bring up Oblivion because the director of Oblivion directed Tron Legacy. And I felt like some of Goranson's score was, had a little bit of Daft Punk vibes sometimes. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you did a little bit. My recommendations are Skyfall and Spectre. Naturally. (laughs) I will say, I'm like, wow, this, this movie kind of looks like Spectre. Well, it's because Soitima was the DP for Spectre. Mm, Well, there you go. Also, um... Roger Deakins was the DP for Skyfall. Right, that I knew. Those are easily the best two best-looking Bond films. Um, for anything, if you want a spy thriller that looks gorgeous and is like kind of compelling, I know people have a lot of issues with Spectre. Um, Skyfall is probably my favorite Bond film. Definitely check those out. Yep. 
I've always seen Skyfall, and it's been a while since I've seen it. Mm. Well, the question after the show is, is Tinnit needlessly convoluted? <laughs> that is a good question. <laughs> that is the question. I'm very curious. You know our thoughts, so I'm mm. curious to see what other people think. But before we can sign off, I do want to rank the Nolan films. Now that we've officially seen all of them that are released, next time we come back for his 12th film, we'll give you our updated ranking as well. All right, so for me, uh, it's going to go like this. I, I gave two tins this time around. I give tins to Inception and, and Memento. So for me, it's going to go Inception first, then Memento, then The Dark Knight, then Dunkirk, then Interstellar, then Tenet, then Batman Begins, Dark Knight Rises, Prestige, Insomnia, and Following. All right, so my list is ranking from best to worst. Inception, number one, Interstellar, The Dark Knight, Memento, the Dark Knight Rises, that caps out my top five. Number six is The Prestige. So here you go, listeners. Tenant is number seven. Ooh. It's low. So then after that, Dunkirk, Batman Begins, Following, and finally, Insomnia, which is the one movie in this entire series I have not recommended. You know, I did go back and watch Insomnia, Um the foreign film that it's based off of. It's mm-hmm. quite good. Much better than no one's film. Um, I mean, it's, what, number 10 out of 11 on my list, so almost at the bottom. Um, I think my rating probably would change if we were to go back and re-rate it, but um, not by a whole lot. So now this is me saying, I recommend Insomnia, the Swedish film. Yes, I do love that one. So you were able to recommend that because I recommended it during that review. Yeah, that's right. So to be clear, let's just go over um, how many numerical values we have given out. Alan, looks like you've given out two tens, one nine, one, two, three, four, six sevens, and two sixes. So we can predominantly say you've given out the most sevens, clearly. Yeah, I think seven is, or well, yeah, I think seven is like overall my most common rating for everything, mm-hmm. but yeah that that doesn't surprise me um that i give out a bunch of sevens so for me i've given out one ten two excuse me three nines two eights which is a number you've never given out for nolan so far that's true um three sevens one six and yeah all the way down to a four yikes yikes so overall um for average scores across the board 3.9 3.9 average for Letterbox, pretty good. Um, 8.2 average for IMDb, 75 average meta meta score, um, 84% average Rotten Tomatoes, 87% average audience. So his movies have had a combined budget of 1.3 billion dollars. Most directors don't ever get to work with that much. Yeah. Um, opening weekend gross of 585 million dollars. Domestically, his films have grossed $2 billion. In the foreign markets, $3 billion for a worldwide gross of $5.1 billion. That's a lot of money. It's a crazy amount of money. As of this recording, 10 Academy Award nominations, 22 Academy Award wins. Man. And that's not even counting Tenant. Yeah, whatever yeah. that whatever that comes out, to, comes out to be. So guess what? Even though this was controversial, Nolan's going to bounce back. 
Yeah. <laughs> is what I'm saying. I'm I'm with you. It's probably given what hasn't come out this year, mm-hmm. um, it's very well very good possibility that it'll sweep the Oscars or at least get a good number of nominations because there hasn't been a whole lot that's come out this year. Well, I gotta say, um I'm glad this review is done with. Yeah. This was easily, I would say, one of our most probably difficult films to review, not just because of the the context of the movie, just mm-hmm. cracking it open, but also it's been difficult because of how much time we spent like preparing for this review. Yeah. It was a very long process, as we've already said, of, you know... We did see the film once, two and a half hours, seeing it again, another two and a half hours is five hours, plus just pausing it and stopping it. That's another six hours. The documentary for me, that's uh, over seven hours. And then listening to the entire score, that's eight hours. So we're looking at not even adding up the minutes, looking about nine hours, not to mention the time just for notes. Yep. Looking at well over 10 hours just preparing for this review. That's... A lot of time for one film. For one film, it is. Nolan, you're worth it. (laughs) Please don't ever make us do this again. (laughs) It's pretty tough. So what a way to start 2021. I'm excited we finally did get to review this movie since it's been a long time coming and it was quite a mystery to review. So nevertheless, we are sticking with time travel. We Mm -hmm. didn't really plan it that way. I didn't really realize it until just not that long ago. But don't worry, listeners, you, I know you're all a bunch of righteous dudes, a bunch of righteous babes. <laughs> it's okay. We are going with Bill and Ted on their excellent adventure, a movie, in fact, a trilogy I've never seen before. Yep. I'm, I've always heard a lot about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. It kind of gets mixed in with Biodome and <laughs> Wayne's World. Um, they all kind of came out, well, Wayne's World and Biodome came out after Bill and Ted's. But they're all somewhat of the same thing if you haven't seen them like I have. So we'll see what it's like next week. I'm very curious. I'm actually very excited. Um, Once again, this was a series that was supposed to come out at the end of 2020. Yeah. Because Face the Music was supposed to come out and um, they took it off the schedule. By that point, like I said, at some point the ship, the schedule is a ship. Yeah. That cannot be turned too quickly, just like in Tenet. You can't jive a boat like any other boat. Remember mm-hmm. that? <laughs> yep. <laughs> so just like that, we couldn't really change it. Also, I believe it came out um, like less than two weeks before my wedding. Yeah. So there's no way we were going to be able to do that. And we were well into a different series at that point. But we'll talk about that next week. So, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us, too, on this crazy review of tenant oh i'm very curious to hear our thoughts when i when i go back and listen to this review as well but until next week listeners we will see you with bill and ted's excellent adventure Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, 
Facebook and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. All right, we go go with the trailers. Uh, uh, darn it. <laughs> Uh-oh, Alan didn't watch them. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> what's, what's new? Your guide to Tenet, I did make some Oscar predictions. And, of course, look for Alan and I's full Oscar prediction. <laughs> <laughs> but before we can sign off, I do want to rank the Nolan films. Now that we've officially seen all of them that are released, next time we come back for his 12th film, we'll give you our updated ranking as well ah uh, darn it i gotta rank them i had them ranked at one point Let's see what was the last film we did dunkirk dunkirk that's right let me go find it real quick if you would put a list on letterbox yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so far his films have had an opening weekend gross of 585 um million dollars um domestic gross of two trillion dollars for a foreign gross of $3 trillion for a worldwide total of $5.1 trillion. Is that trillion? Are you sure it's not billion? I think it's $5 billion, $5.1 billion. Oh, you're right. It is billion. Did I say trillion for these ones? Yeah. So they're all billion, <laughs> not trillion. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> okay. 2021 with... I would say a very solid review. So we're really happy to honestly dive into this movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Caught caught my breath there. (laughs) Um, Do you want Chipotle instead of Chick-fil-A? That's fine. Okay. uh, Tell me what you want. I'll text you. Oh, geez. Uh, (laughs) uh, Hey, I can open up the app for you. Chicken burrito. Okay. I think I gotta think I, I haven't been in Chipotle for almost a year now. Chicken burrito. I'm gonna call Miranda real quick just so she doesn't put the order in. Okay. Cause I I'm I'm really hungry for that actually. It does sound pretty good. <laughs>